Welcome to Fandom Femmes! We are two queer femmeers of color who use humor and fun to take your favorite convention's diversity panel and turn it into a year-round conversation. I'm Justine. And I'm Noelle. And welcome to our episode! <laughs> so, Noelle, we are coming towards the end of the month of April. April? And that's Wait actually... <laughs> and that's actually a perfect um time that we wanted to do this very special episode so do you kind of want to talk a little bit about what we're going to do today we are talking about this wonderful anime that brings me to so many tears uh your lie in april wow and if for those of you who don't know about your lie in april it is an anime about classical music i mean not completely about you know it's an anime so there's a boy and a girl period but yeah. why I bring this up is because uh, the main character is a pianist and the supporting love interest is a violinist. And wow, look who we have here. We have a pianist and a violinist. And podcasters. And podcasters, period. A long-awaited collaboration that we've been uh, wiggling in our pants for I have no idea what that was but <laughs> we are going to introduce them very quickly right now would you like to go first Sophia yes oh my gosh I I was also wiggling in my pants for this <laughs> I'm sad <laughs> I was like wow what a phrase but yes we got to have Justine on our podcast a couple of times we got to do an event together and now we get to chat about music together and I was just um, reflecting on how I've never really been asked too much about my accompaniment, accompanist experience before. So I'm excited to share about that. So I'm Sophia. I use she, her pronouns. Uh, I've been playing piano since I was six years old. And aside from doing a lot of solo competitions, I've been an accompanist for many different types of groups. So actually, when I was seven years old, uh, being an accompanist with my first job, my brother was a violinist. He was five years old. He had his first violin recital at five years old. And his teacher was like, Ooh, Sophia plays the piano. Let's pay her $25 to accompany like 25 students. It was like a $25 gift card. I was so underpaid, but it was so fun. Um, And then when I was 13, I was an accompanist for my children's choir that I sang in. uh, And then I accompanied all of my brother's violin performances. I have so many roasts about him if you ever want to hear. And then I was also an accompanist for this program that my choir did. It was called International Choral Workshop. It was held at Stanford, actually. So I got to hang out at Tan's uh, campus a little bit. Um, And then I was both an interpreter and uh, accompanist for that choral program. And then in high school, I got to do more accompaniment. In college, I accompanied a lot of my friends' senior recitals. And so I've gotten to accompany groups of, you know, many different types of groups at different stages of my life. Um, and I have lots of thoughts about this anime. So I'm so excited to get to chat with you all about it. Yes. Yes, we are so happy to have you here. Um, Tan, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself too? Yes, uh, thank you so much, Justine and Noelle, for having us. Uh, I'm Tan, I use she, her pronouns. And I guess before we forget to mention, we're uh, Sophia and I are the co-hosts of Bamboo and Glass, which we've been so excited to have Justine on and do, a, again, the events with Fandom Femmes together. So for me, I am a violinist 
my hmm, that's that's kind of weird coming out of my mouth because I don't really play violin that much anymore. But I started playing violin when I was five years old. And for folks who don't know me, I when I was very young, I moved around a lot. And so usually, what would happen is I moved to a new city. I get into the school, I get accustomed to the school, and the next thing is I get into church, and then the third thing we'll always find is a violin teacher. Um, mm-hmm. And so I always was involved with violin lessons, private violin lessons, as well as orchestras, youth orchestras outside of school. And when I moved to the Bay Area, when I was in middle school, that's where I really found just this huge landscape of youth orchestras. There's like probably over 10 youth orchestras in the Bay Area. And I think now living outside of the Bay, I realized how overly competitive that landscape was for all of us and just how we were held to such high professional standards. And so like Sophia, I did a lot of competitions when I was younger. And in my high school experience, I ended up joining the San Francisco Symphony Youth Orchestra. and which was a youth orchestra funded by the San Francisco city. And I ended up spending all my weekends in SF. I would take the BART to uh, SF and I'd go at like 8 a.m. in the morning and I was enrolled in the San Francisco Conservatory where I I would perform with my chamber music quartet and we would rehearse for like three hours, grab lunch right next to the conservatory and then walk two blocks over to Davies Symphony Hall to have our four-hour orchestra rehearsal. So it was always this huge escapade and excursion to go to SF every Saturday, but that was really my main extracurricular for pretty much my whole life until before college. And mm-hmm. I think since college, I guess the beginning of college, I felt like I've had a very complicated relationship with violin because it was something that was so highly encouraged for me to do by my community, my parents. And then once I got to college, it was all of a sudden the lowest priority. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, I, I really related to the main character in the anime. And so I'm really excited to be able to see such a great portrayal of classical music in pop culture and media and to be able to chat about it with all of you today. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for sharing that. I'm really excited to get into uh, the theme of today's episode. And it's so perfect that y'all are coming to the table with your um, experiences as like um, being in like youth orchestras and like performing classical musicians. But before we dive into that, could you tell us a little bit more about what Bamboo and Glass is all about? Sure. Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll go first and then Sophia, you can fill in any blanks. Um, so yeah, so Bamboo and Glass is a podcast that we started together uh, in January 2019. So it's been a little over two years now at this point. Wow. Um, yeah, we have over 100 episodes, which has been just really exciting to be able to look back on. And our tagline is that we spotlight um, underrepresented perspectives that shape our lifelong journey of learning and unlearning. Um, this really came about because we started the podcast when we were entering our post-grad chapter of our lives where we were, you know, really not sure how to navigate our careers or the workplace. And we just didn't really hear that many conversations of that questioning period. And so we thought that it would be really great to, you know, have the accountability to catch up with one another, share our musings and wonderings at the time, and to be able to just share that to see if anyone else would resonate. And so we've definitely moved 
Um, beyond just career, we talk a lot about relationships. We have had one particular guest, Reina, who's been on a couple of times where we've gotten to chat with her about classical music and the things that we miss, the things that we um, are glad to leave behind and stuff. And so it's been a really wonderful experience to co-create that with Sophia, especially as we don't live in the same cities. And so podcasting has just been a really meaningful medium for both of us to keep in touch. Yeah. I also want to hype up our recent episodes with Justine. So Justine had the wonderful idea about talking about consent, but really expanding the conversation beyond sex and beyond romantic relationships. Uh, and so we talked about our first experiences with consent and also how consent shows up in podcasting, in our relationships with our family, in professional relationships, in friendships even. Uh, so that was really fun and glad to get to be on your show and see how you run your wonderful podcast. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you so much. This is like, I just want to say before we kind of dive into the theme of today that um, when Noelle and I started um, our podcast, we really like use your y'all's as like a blueprint to how we kind of do things here. Like you really inspire us. Um, and it's really, really cool to like have you on and like collaborating with us today. So thank you so much for really paving the way for us. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, I remember when um, we were first doing our outlines for like, oh, we were doing like our dreams, especially for like 2020. Uh, no, it is 2021 now. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but I remember we we did like like a whole like dream dream document and we wanted to like, like oh which collaborations we for sure want and need you guys were first on the list oh mm-hmm. y'all are mm-hmm. so sweet first oh my on goodness. the list we're like like oh who do we want to call bamboo and glass hurry up just put it down like yes it's ready there so well you made you manifested it it's happening yes. right here right <laughs> now hey, hey. We, did we did it we did it yeah <laughs> is it lohisimo we did we did it, it. Sorry, I was. I always forget the one phrase. Okay, anywho, <laughs> thank you so much for all of your intros and letting us know about your wonderful, wonderful podcast. Everyone there also on all of your wonderful podcasting streaming sites. So feel free, go and check them out. Bamboo and Glass. So yes, yes, yes. We are talking about Your Lie in April. So really quick for those of you who haven't watched it. Also, spoiler alert. Um. If you haven't watched it, please do. It's still April. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's April or not. Please, it's just a. It's on like um, everyone has said. It's it's like a. It's just honestly like a work of art. The entire mm. thing, um, in terms of the plot, in terms of the visuals, in terms of the music, everything was just so well written and well animated. And so, yes, Your Light in April is a 2014 anime that follows a piano prodigy named Kosei Arima, who had become famous as a child musician after dominating many competitions. However, as his mother died, he could no longer play the piano. Uh, two years later, Kosei meets a girl named Kaori Miyazono, who helps Kosei return to the world of music by showing that music should be played freely and without restrictions, unlike Kosei, who had played his music in a structured manner. And also, Kaori was a violinist. So, yes, they were in high school, in the younger side of high school. So, yes, so that's what we're dealing with, is this uh, wonderful 12-episode binge. Mm. Uh, Speaking of anime, have you two ever watched anime? Do you consume it at all 
Not much, actually. I had seen your name and my neighbor Totoro, but that was about it. And this one, like you said, absolutely gorgeous. Just every scene you could take a screen cap of and want to make a poster of. So it was just so, the music was wonderful. The visuals were wonderful. The story is beautiful. Just, yeah, really good treat. Yeah, I, I guess similarly for me, I had watched a lot of Studio Ghibli films when I was younger, but honestly, I think so since I was so young, I couldn't really remember the plots of a, of a lot of them. I just remembered <laughs> the character Totoro, the character Kiki, yeah. and all that <laughs> stuff. Um, and so it wasn't until college where I watched Spirited Away for the first time, and my partner, James, he ended up discovering the film Your Name, and was mm-hmm. he is obsessed with it. That is literally his favorite film. He makes he made me watch it like 20 times at this point. And I was the one who told, I was like, Sophia, you should watch this film as well. It's so good. It's, it's really so good. good. And I think that kind of brought him into an anime tornado, I guess you could say, and that <laughs> I I was taken along with it. So we've I've, more recently I've watched um Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Ooh, watched, very good choice. Um, Attack on Titan was very mm. uh, on board every single week the past couple of months, yes. mm-hmm. and I also most recently started watching My Hero Academia. So mm. oh, also mm-hmm. great. Yes, Jeb kisses. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I actually kind of like on that note, like in the same vein, I, I it's been a while since I like watched an anime and like preparing for this episode was the first time I really like watched one again. Um, and also like Noelle, I, I wanted to ask as well, um, do you have any classical music pl- playing experience? Because I don't. <laughs> Ooh, haha. Mm, so <laughs> no. But I did play the piano only because I it was in my house. I never got any formal training. It was just like everyone, like my mom, all of my grandma's kids and my grandma, only mm-hmm. the females though, were like were taught piano. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just had all of their lesson books and stuff. And I was an only child. So I, I am an only child. And so I, I would get bored and they're just like – go play the piano and i'm like okay mary had a little lamb we got it green sleeves <laughs> that price that shit i got it dg yeah i remember that um entertainer barely just a din like yeah 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 i got it and then my aunt also had like that like electronic pianos where like um you know like it, it'll just highlight the key that you need to press yeah i remember those <laughs> yeah yeah and then i was like I play the piano. <laughs> and so, um, other than that, I've, no, 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 yeah, no. <laughs> but I did, uh, oh, classical music. I, I, I don't, do you know this, uh, Justine? I, I used to play the clarinet. Actually. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I, I played the clarinet for three years. I, w- I always wanted to buy one just to keep it going. But, um, yeah, I, de- I technically played classical music with the clarinet, but it was in middle school in band. Mm-hmm. So, oh my gosh, that that's yeah. cool. Yeah, so I can read sheet music, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have. Z- Thank you for sharing that, Noelle. I have no music experience at all. Um, I was in band, but I was in color guard, so that's something separate mm. from band. But like, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so I'm really appreciate. We're just coming to the table with a bunch of like different perspectives on this um, and like different experiences with music. Honestly, like I'll get it. This is going to come back later into get wrecked. But like, I will say that I've 
recently kind of become obsessed with like the classical music side of YouTube, even though I don't have any experience with classical music whatsoever. But we'll get there later. Um, I did want to ask for um, our guests today and like also Noelle too. What were some of y'all's initial impressions of Your Lie in April when um, you started watching it? Um, first of all (laughs) the visuals were absolutely gorgeous um second i was just so excited that there was a story about something that not a lot of people know about a lot of people know oh if you're a pianist um yeah like they, they don't really think that being an accompanist is like a legit thing they think you're just like like a supporting character, but it's actually quite difficult to be an accompanist. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to know the piece so well that you can uplift the performer and make them look good, even if they start to rush because they're nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as an accompanist, even though we have so much rehearsal, there are a lot of conditions to adapt to in the moment. Like, for example, I was taught to think about how does my performer's sound change in the hall Um you know, when there's no one in the hall versus when the hall is full of people and their clothing absorbs the sound. How do I change my playing to adapt to that, right? Like, I don't think that's something people know that accompanists have to think about. Um, and also, and you know, when their sound is less resonant, perhaps that feedback sounds different. And so the, the speed of their playing starts to differ a little bit too. And it was just so... It was one of my first impressions um, was that, that point when the girls asks the guy uh to be her accompanist she they didn't rehearse together and I was like oh my gosh I would just never really happen in real life because your accompanist needs to like know you so well and be able to adapt to you so I thought that was kind of funny um another impression I had was that um I was a little frustrated that that Kauri didn't really take the time to understand um the guy's anxiety around music before mm-hmm. pushing him to be her accompanist. I was a little frustrated at her for that. Uh, <laughs> so those are some things that I picked up. Oh, and I also loved all the pieces that they chose. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, specifically, like you mentioned the pieces and stuff. Like, did you, um, do you like listen to classical music? Like on your, on your own time and stuff, like when you're not playing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. And these are pieces that I had performed before or had always wanted to perform before. And it was also really fun to see. They put a lot of the anime, the animators put a lot of care into like animating the hands before they started the piece, which I really appreciated because a huge component of starting your piece right is like one envisioning that, you know, envisioning a beautiful beginning, but also placing your hands in a way that helps you like launch into the piece in the right way. So those details were Loved it. Oh, so cool. That's awesome. What about you, Tan? What were some of your impressions? Yeah, so I think, like Sophia mentioned, and I mentioned in the beginning, there aren't that many pieces of media that kind of cover classical music that is, you know, just consumed by the everyday audience. Um, The only one I could think of is Whiplash, which is a film back from like 2014. Honestly, it's all. I'm in I'm in film school right now. They talk about that film all the time, and I get really triggered every time they talk about it because I'm like that trauma and that anger issue. Like that was my that that's what I had to deal with all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was interesting to be able to see this anime because I think it does cover some of that. Um, I guess darkness of the classical music world, but it also kind of was weaves in with like 
a high schooler's everyday life of like going to school, like needing to balance like the music as well as like their schoolwork. Um, they have friends who aren't dressed in classical music. Um, and I felt like that was pretty representative of how I had felt of, you know, kind of being caught almost between two worlds. It was like during the weekdays I was at school and then all weekends was like, I am around completely different, different people. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I really resonated with how they've decided to portray classical music and the characters who do classical music in that sense. Um, Again, beautiful visuals, like Sophia said. It really reminded me a lot of like your name and weathering with you Mm -hmm. in terms of just the style, uh, the visual style. Um, And Kaori, yeah, she... (laughs) <laughs> she's wild. <laughs> uh, when she started playing, I was like, really? Is she playing like that at a competition? <laughs> and so and so when I heard everyone being so flabbergasted, I was just feeling the same exact way of like, I have never heard anyone play like that. And that's almost why she's a compelling character because she is this wild card of like people... You can't really understand her because she doesn't really go by society's rules. Mm-hmm. Like literally mm-hmm. when you meet her, she like takes up, she, her pants are off and she's just like hanging around like with the recorder, mm-hmm. um, like accordion or something. And so I, I think her character was just really intriguing to watch as someone who has been, you know, just conditioned to grow up a particular way or to act a particular way in the classical music world. And so it was really refreshing to see her as like the violinist. And so I can't make exactly the same kinds of comments that Sophia made about the um, the detail of uh, like how they started the performance with violin because she was just wild. She was wild. <laughs> <laughs> I can't really give much comment on that. But mm. otherwise, like the concert halls, the competitions, like the everyone waiting around in the lobby was very accurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but I'd love to hear what both of you thought as people who um, didn't do classical music, I guess, as like your main extracurricular um, or didn't have as much experience as us. Yeah, um, I can go first. So um, honestly, like hearing so I, I don't have like I said, I don't have like the the degree of classical music experience that y'all have. But um I, I honestly, I guess to, to kind of preface this, I don't really watch like romance anime and like that's something that just in general, that's just not my same thing with like Korean dramas. Like I'm more of like an action adventure type person or like a, you know, murder mystery type person. Like the romance genre isn't something that I naturally gravitate to. So, but so this is the first time in a while that I've like watched something like this, like for, um, for this episode. And uh, when I was watching it, I there were definitely some points where I'm just like oh my god like okay it's like a um I I was surprised by the how big of a role the music played into it because I just thought like okay this is a love story and then with musical overtones you know like a love story with notes of music but no like the music was was its own character like in the um in the story and um there was so like a lot of the the passion and like vigor that the characters like even the supporting characters had for their music and one of the major themes that kind of resonated with me was the fact that you know you don't know who who's watching you and you don't know who's inspired by you because Mm -hmm. um like as you go through the story like different characters are inspiring each other to play music and it's revealed later on like how and why and 
to what extent um, they all inspired each other. So that was like a really, really uplifting message. And it was really cool. Um, it just made me emo all over, honestly, um, <laughs> especially with like, honestly, in general, I just get very sentimental about um, stories around family and, and parents. Um, and I think that was even though I'm not like, I, I didn't grow up in this kind of classical music type bubble or like type world, I could really relate to this feeling of like, wanting to wanting to impress your parents. And like, I relate to um, I, I, I myself experience this and like other people I know who have experienced this feeling of parents kind of um, wanting so badly for their children to like manifest what they feel is success um, without knowing the the harm that they're causing, you know, mm-hmm. and um, like parents wanting their best for their children, but not knowing because they're human, not knowing how to give that to them. So that was like a really, really cool um line of the story too and noelle i'm curious about uh what you thought about it because i watched it for the first time bam uh, bamboo and glass we're watching it for the first time also but like this is your second time like second time watching it or um, no, no? <laughs> <laughs> i'm a serial watcher so um Aww. yeah so i i mean I'm the opposite of Justine. I mean, I also love Shonen. I'm really big. I, I'm I'm like a, I watch a lot of anime, mm-hmm. so I cast my net very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it came out in 2014, but I watched it in 2015, and it was just on everyone's scope at that time. And so I was like, it was actually an interesting time because I was a sophomore in college, and at that time, I was actually going through a depressive bout. So, um. Normally, like, that was actually one of my, like, first times experiencing that. And so I hold mm-hmm. myself in, up in my room and I watch a lot of anime. Like, to me, it felt healthy, but probably an unhealthy amount of anime. Um, but it was, uh, I binged that anime so fast and ended up sobbing in my room by myself. <laughs> but it, it was interesting because, you know, even though I was going through that depressive episode, the sobbing was, like, a happy sobbing mm-hmm. like I wasn't sad and so mm-hmm. it was like such an interesting experience um I swear I've watched this multiple times with other people because I wanted to see them sob too oh. to <laughs> myself I can relate to I that like did you sob as much as I did because <laughs> I sobbed um and I think the big thing for me like I mean I love anime that teach me things like things like worlds that I don't know about in the real world and so like say for example like this anime is about like the classical music world or you can learn about swimmers <clears throat> just seen <laughs> or um, you can oh learn God, about you know like science you know I there's this one anime about coding there's one about weightlifting so like mm-hmm. so, so um I was like also under the impression that like it was going to be like oh you know love story amongst like music people cool but it was like what was great was that like me as a dancer um sounds really cheesy but like music truly moves me and so like the the way that they intertwine the music with like and especially how they explained you know like um i think what the aunt said the the piano like reveals like the emotions of the player you know or something mm-hmm. so or and so i was like like you you can really like um and as someone who has like a lot of experience with not 
exactly playing music but just listening to music you can always or even live music you can always like kind of just hear the differences to like how something's played and how like that person is like feeling like and compare that to like Mm -hmm. the way other people play it same same thing as like when people sing you know like some people sing things differently and it makes you feel differently right and so um that's kind of like the the way the music was was in it was just uh it was hmm. I was also emo (laughs) to a healthy extent (laughs) I believe but yeah I am I I'm a nerd for this so like everything about it was just it's literally like I'm gonna say top 10 because uh top five is so hard to crack so (laughs) but top 10 is still very high up there for me (laughs) so yeah it's 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 a great 12 episode like especially for people that don't watch a lot of anime I feel like it's a great one to yeah to introduce people to anime yeah yes oh so yes <laughs> speaking of this anime um and we talked about it a little bit um both of you but how accurate do you think was the violin and piano playing um and the, the classic um music competition culture in this mm-hmm. anime I mean we've touched on it here and there but we're ready to dive in. <laughs> it's funny because I remember Sophia and I, we were on a call, I think last week, and we briefly were talking about like the progress we had made through Your Lion April and talking about like, oh, like what did we notice and whatnot? And so it was really bringing back, it was nice because I feel like it was bringing back a lot of memories for us, Sophia, because it's been a while since we played and professionally. Um, the eye contact between the accompanist and the soloist. So important. So important. Like if you I feel like I've seen, you know, just really bad <laughs> musical performances that clearly the actor does not know how to play. And they're like, their bow is all over the place. Like, <laughs> and, the, and the notes aren't even in tune. And you're looking, I'm like, that finger would not give you that note. Why is that <laughs> note coming out of that violin, obviously? <laughs> and so it, I guess in some ways, an, anime and animation is very forgiving in that sense. And kind of what you were saying earlier, Noelia, about just like the world building aspect, um, I really enjoyed how they shared the voiceovers of the thoughts that was going through mm. Jose's mind, because that is literally, I'm just talking to myself the whole time during the performance of like, am I going to remember, am I going to fuck up that note again? Am I going to fuck up that riff? Uh, oh my God, like, did I forget where to go from here? And so it was really cool to see it in an animation context i feel like animation is a little bit more forgiving in terms of having those fast cuts with the fast pacedness of you know not just having this piece sit by itself but also allowing the performer's thoughts be interweaved with the piece Mm -hmm. um i think also uh something that's a little inaccurate which sophia mentioned earlier is yeah, you would never bring an someone you are playing with for the first time to a competition. Like, actually... That's just I, self-sabotage. You would yeah. never. <laughs> so I've actually never played with an accompanist my age. Um, it's always been mm. someone who's like... 50s, 60s, 70s, like mm. someone who, you know, has, you know, all of the repertoire possible that, you know, 
teenagers would be playing, like stuffed into mm-hmm. their brain so that they know like the piece by the back of their hand so that if they're meeting with a performer for the first time, like for like a one rehearsal before the competition or the recital, um, they'd be able to really quickly adjust and adapt. And so that really, like for the soloist, like as for me, I don't want to be worried about what the accompanist is doing. I have very mm-hmm. little context of what the accompanist is actually playing. Like all I can know is like the vague beats just can tell when things are a little bit off rhythm, things are, you know, just not in sync. Um, and the difference there too, that I think, in the anime they portrayed well was that the accompanist usually has sheet music the soloist mm-hmm. does not which is why again like the soloist really has to be sure that the accompanist is like locked down and is going to be able to support the soloist no matter what mm-hmm. um because you don't <laughs> you, like if if the soloist gets off then the accompanist can like you know at least repeat some phrases they can make adjustments like easily find like okay like they're actually over here on this page so let me go to that part versus mm-hmm. if an accompanist were the fuck up then the soloist is like what am I supposed to do? And they are front and center. Like they're mm-hmm, not behind yeah. anyone. And so everyone would be able to see that. Um, so that's what I'll say for now, but I'd love to hear Sophia, um, what's really stood out to you. Yeah. Great point about the sheet music. I think a lot of people think, Oh, the accompanist has the sheet music. Like, oh, they didn't memorize it. They're yeah, not they talented. Yeah. It. If they had the music there, like, isn't it so easy? They're just reading the music. No, when I'm an accompanist, <laughs> yeah. I, I have the piece pretty much memorized because I've rehearsed it so much. Well, sometimes I rehearsed a lot. Sometimes I don't have a chance to rehearse as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the sheet music because if the soloist has a moment, blanks out, I have to figure out where to go on the sheet music to help prompt their memory of how to get started again. Mm-hmm. I, have a, I have accompanied people where they just forget pages of the piece because they're so nervous. Yeah. And I'm there and I'm like, I have to figure out I have to anticipate where they're going because sometimes by the mistake that they can make, I can tell like, okay, they're, they accidentally landed on this chord. So they're confused and they're probably going to this part of the piece. Mm. And then I have to be like, okay, so this means I have to flip three pages. Okay. So where do I think they're going? They're probably going to land in the middle of like the 10th page. So I have to like, I have one chance to just turn three pages at once and go there. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So people think that the music is like for the accompanist. No, the music (laughs) is for the accompanist to help the soloist in case anything happens. Yeah, to give like maybe like break it down a little bit, um, like in a pop song, you have verse A chorus, verse B chorus, bridge, and then chorus, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. the basic structure. A soloist could very easily go like verse A chorus, and then just skip to the bridge because they just forgot. And mm-hmm. so the accompanist has to know that, like, I guess story, song, piece structure in order to be able to catch on like, oh, wait, they actually aren't playing verse B like I thought. They're actually at the bridge. So now I have to skip to the bridge, but also like not so frantically turn the pages to get to where that is so that the audience <laughs> has no idea that there was any fuck ups. So yeah, once my brother screwed up during a performance, I'm going to roast him now. And (laughs) I was so panicked. I grabbed my sheet music and I was just like, I wasn't even thinking. I was just like fumbling for it. And I turned the page and I turned it so aggressively. It fell on my hands as I was playing. So I had to not, I had then to take a couple more moments to like process. Oh my God, my like book's about to fall off of my hands. And then think about how what chord okay now i only have one hand available right because other than what what is the chord i'm like aiming for and how can i play just like three out of the i don't know 
five notes of the chord to like help him keep going while my other hand is like fishing out the you know the music and then putting it back on the piano so yeah again yeah. not easy <laughs> amazing I guess just to add to the anxiety aspect so just like the anxiety before the competition which I think the anime portrays pretty well just everyone like waiting in a lobby like waiting for the results especially if there's multiple rounds but there's mm-hmm. also that anxiety during the performance um mm-hmm. and what Sophia just said about the music that happens so often like sometimes there's a draft in the concert hall and your sheet music is just gonna fly off your stand <gasps> and no. you just have to keep your cool and just keep playing mm-hmm. without doing anything about that the other thing that always kills me about classical music is that you know there's sometimes those slow quiet movements and then you gotta sneeze and you're <laughs> oh, on stage no. I've, I've had so true I've, story i've never sneezed but there have been so many times where i'm like with all my strength and energy i'm not even looking <laughs> at the music anymore i'm just like don't sneeze you are in the middle of like a hundred person orchestra and you're in the front row if you sneeze everyone's going to see you and the conductor's gonna start glaring at you so that's another aspect of you know it, i think obviously as dancers you all would know that your health is so important and i think um I think for, I don't know if about piano, but for string instruments, you don't, you can kind of get away with like having a cold a lot of the time because you don't need, you're not playing a woodwind instrument. You don't need to like mm-hmm. have your lung capacity necessarily. But yeah, sometimes when you got to sneeze and it's allergy season and you're playing in the middle of a slow <laughs> movement, you gotta, you gotta hold it in the entire mm-hmm. time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of just like being prepared for the worst on stage, oftentimes you'll also see accompanists it's not just their sheet music in a book. They'll often photocopy pages and tape it together because sometimes let's say, you know, when you're opening a book, you see two pages at once. The second page, the end of that second page might be a really complex piece of part of the song. And you just don't, you don't have a hand free to be able to turn the page and you might not have the luxury of a page turner. So sometimes I just have this if it's a really complex song, I have like six Five, pages in yeah. a row because oh I just, within these six pages, I don't have a chance to turn my page. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's um, where um, versions of scores and music is really important. Like, you really know, you can, like, everyone can be playing the same exact piece, but they likely there's a lot of different versions of the sheet music that people are working with because, you know, there are some versions where they, there's different preferences, right? Like sometimes there's a particular marking that is really like that this company marks really well for um, Baroque era pieces, let's say. Um, But then sometimes with what Sophia was just saying, sometimes the version is just not good and you get to the end of the page and there's no rests for you. There's no break for you to turn the page. Like it just is like 16th notes running through and you're like, well, there's literally no way I'm going to be able to flip the page. So I'm going to need to photocopy it or Mm -hmm. figure out a way to memorize ahead of time so that I can flip when the time is right for that. So mm-hmm. I see. Sorry, I feel like we threw a lot at y'all. Oh, no, no, I love it. I love it. <laughs> if you relate in any way. Yeah. Um, I, I like as I was listening to y'all, I was I couldn't help but like think as well because um when Sophia was talking about like her experience as an accompanist, how basically you have to anticipate like where these people are going to kind of like um like where like if they mess up like where they're gonna pick it back up again and um I think 
and I like what you said about you know how you would never go into the competition like never like just throwing two people together and that kind of thing um so I'm curious like how does that um as an like from the point of view of like a soloist and from the point of view of an accompanist like what does the getting to know you process like look like for um like between like how does that relationship form um yeah because like in the anime it was like we see like kaori and kosei like spending um like long nights together in the music room we see them like bonding like outside of practice and stuff um so yeah like what does that relationship building look like because i've i mean from like what tan shared like you know a lot of these professionals like don't get to work with you for like aren't your accompanist forever so yeah how, what does that look like from y'all's point of view mm. uh, i can go first um so when i usually work with an accompanist usually it's someone that my violin teacher probably recommended who he, they probably worked with this accompanist before and can trust them and usually i might have definitely at least have one rehearsal if i have the luxury maybe two or three um, before a competition. And so usually I go in, I meet the person for the first time. And it's just funny because I feel like now when I do, you know, collaborations or, you know, just performances with people, um, I feel like there is more of this. I have more of a desire to have this casual getting to know you, like learn about like your life story type of thing. But definitely for class music, it was like strictly business. Like we're just going to focus on the piece. And so mm-hmm. usually we start off by just running through the whole thing. Like no checking in of like, oh, I want things this way or that way, or this is how I'm going to play it. You just try running it through. And mm-hmm. then usually um, you go back and forth about oh, Talon, like, what do you want to try playing again? Like, would that feel comfortable to you? And then it's like, oh, that didn't feel so comfortable. Let's try that section again. Or the pianist will be like, hey, um, I noticed that you played it this way. Is that how you intend to play uh, for the recital? Mm -hmm. And so I'll be like, oh, yes, that is how I intend to play. Or "Hmm, I'm not too sure. Can we actually try it again? Because I was really not sure where the count was going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's usually how the conversation goes. And so... Usually you start with a run through and then you end with a run through um, just kind of sum up all of the feedback and the notes that you all have been passing off to one another. And so that I think is pretty repetitive for the other um, rehearsals that you would get to do as well. And, you know, some, a lot of times when you go into the competition or recital, probably change them some things on the fly and the accompanist is going to have to adapt to that. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Tan shared an example of having just one or two rehearsals, and I can share a perspective of me being in college, and uh, I accompanied a lot of my friends' senior recitals. And so in preparation for that, I would attend many, many, many rehearsals. So during rehearsals, I would hear what notes and what, what comments they're teacher is giving them and think about how could I remind the performer to perform this way. So for example, if the performer often is rushing in this area, so, uh, you know, just playing too quickly, I will try to like be a little bit louder and just like a little more like deliberate in my playing to remind them like, okay, you need to stop, you need to, you know, calm down a little bit. Or if there are some certain like dynamics they really want to bring out or like tempos they really want to bring out, I will like I'll remind them of that and I'll like try to get ahead of that a little bit or like really emphasize a part of my playing to kind of motivate them to think about oh I remember my teacher said this because on stage I have the music and so I have all the notes from all the rehearsals but they don't and so there's a lot I can do to support them um 
And I will say, I have developed many crushes on a lot of the people I've collaborated with. Yeah. It's cool to see that that's accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's so funny. We love it. Uh, Can I ask Tan a question? Yeah. 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 Tan, I'm really curious. What did you appreciate the most about the companies that you've worked with? Oh, this is their adaptability. Um, they mm. keep them cool while, while I'm like sweaty <laughs> palms, knees shaking and like, oh my God, I have no idea where I am. Um, <laughs> like I, I've had my, I definitely wouldn't say I'm um, a natural performer. I think I definitely feel the need to like prepare a lot, have actual experience being on the actual location and the stage that we're performing on like that is usually what makes me feel the most comfortable and so usually I, I've had my fair share of like memory blinks um for sure mm. and where or if I have a riff and my hands are so sweaty that my hands just slip and I'm like ah and I am beating myself up during the piece and then by beating myself up I forget the next thing that's coming up and mm. so that is always been definitely difficult and usually having an accompanist that I know is supportive who is going to signal to me like a phrase that I will for sure know when to come back in or know where to uh, line back up with him or her I think that usually is really helpful for me in a performance and I mean honestly I feel like I have usually I work with the same accompanist as long as I am with the same violin teacher, because like there is also this trust that the teacher mm, okay. has with that accompanist. Um, and so kind of like similar to, I forgot about this, but similar to what Sophia said, like sometimes the accompanist, if they have time on their hands, they'll come into my lesson and, you know, play the piece. And rarely, rarely does my teacher give a notes to the accompanist. The notes are mm. to me, but they're just like, oh, like, can you play it with like, hey, can you play it with time so that she gets a feel for how this is going to go and this is going to ha- uh, pan out in the performance. Awesome. Thank you. Wow. I feel like I know you guys say that you're like throwing a lot at us, but I'm like learning a lot and it's really fun. This is really cool. <laughs> yeah, really it's really awesome. cool. Yeah. Because I mean, I, I don't know. Like I this is like a field that's like not on my radar. So it's really cool to hear mm-hmm. from y'all. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, we see Cowdy uh, in the anime just wilding out as usual. <laughs> um, so in terms of like her playing, obviously there's a huge difference between these two um, romantic interests where Kaori is just, you know, a bowl. <laughs> I don't know how to explain this. She's just flowing with color and passion, whereas Arima, you know, is just so used to just playing it by the book, was actually, you know, like disciplined for not playing it exactly the way the score said so. Um, what are y'all's opinion on, uh, I guess, their play styles or in terms of like how do you like to interpret the music or Mm -hmm. how do you like to perform it I mean I know some um both of you had teachers uh so it's like how do you like interact with your teacher in that way like oh I don't want to play it that way I want to play it this way like how much freedom do you have um as the artist Mm -hmm. 
That's a really good question. I would say I love my piano teacher because her number one priority was always that I was having fun. Um, but there are some competitions that are kind of more notorious for, and some judges who are more notorious for being like very by the book. And, mm. you know, now that I look back on it, I wonder how much a performer's gender has to do with how much they're oh. judged for their creativity. Mm. Because I can, I can imagine that male performers are seen as if they go kind of wild and off script they could be interpreted as like wow like you know the, the term like mad genius or so but i mm-hmm. wonder if people would treat a woman who is being a little bit more creative p- putting her personality in. i wonder if they would treat her differently um mm. i that just popped into my head i don't know if tan if you've noticed any patterns in how you see people evaluated for how much creativity they include Hmm. Uh, I have so many thoughts. Um, <laughs> well, so with, like I mentioned, Kaori, like she, her playing is just very different from what I've never heard any, anything like her playing, like just to put it simply. And I think just to add to like an inaccuracy that I notice is, you know, how when, you know, the judges were critiquing her playing and then the audience was like standing ovation. That would not really happen at a competition because Mm. there really wouldn't be an audience who is there just to like listen for fun and to Mm. listen for the entertainment. A lot of times it's like the parents are there, the the Mm -hmm. teachers of these contestants are there. And so they all have their way of, you know, understanding like what is the right way to play. And I think for me, I definitely grew up in an environment where there was a right way to play things. And there, the thing is like, there's so many like different notations in sheet music. Like you have dynamics, you have staccato, you have rubato, you have all of these notations that you're supposed to take into consideration. And as a result, like there is like a little bit of room to have your own interpretation, but there are, you know, overall like this basic set of rules that you are supposed to follow. And so I think for me starting off as a soloist and starting off in private lessons, I was going to have to, I was most likely going to have to play it the way my teacher was wanting me to play it. And I don't think it was until I started doing a quartet for three years that we had the experience of like a coach coming in, giving her input and working with us. And then the four of us discussing amongst one another, like how we would like to interpret it. And I think that was where I really thought, oh, wow, like I have some say in how uh, we can play this. It doesn't always have to be the same way. Like it always felt like, oh, the adult, the person with the more experience is going to be the one who determines the way that the students or the child is going to play it. And so Mm. it was all, I think for me, mainly focused on like making sure everything's in tune, making sure everything is accurate rhythmically and making sure that the phrases, um, were being played the way that the composer intended them to play. So that's like another thing too. Like the, these composers like are, mo- <laughs> all of them are dead. <laughs> so there's this idea that, oh, the composer intended it to be played this way. So you should, you know, be almost like honoring what they had put on paper and um. be like, you shouldn't go wild with your interpretation. Mm. Like you should stay within the reign, the realm mm. of what they wanted to portray. And so it's, it's interesting because it's just, like you can't ask this composer now, like if they would have been okay with a particular interpretation, but mm-hmm. that's just what this classical music society or community has decided is going to be the way to play things. And so, yeah, I think a lot, it's always a balance of like, okay, would you 
like if you had a competition and you had someone who played very accurately and someone who was kind of a mess but played very passionately and you felt their emotion like who are you going to pick like that mm-hmm. is I never know the answer mm-hmm. honestly mm-hmm. for the most part the ideal candidate would be someone who does both in some way yeah. like you somehow are technically like very accurate on everything but you still moved people in some way and mm-hmm. so I think that's definitely always been the tricky balance because I've definitely been more of like I will play more emotionally and not really care too much about the technicalities as much. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times, like if you know one note is out of tune, that can pull someone out. If they've you know studied this music for so long, they know this piece right. inside and out. So mm-hmm. actually, that's a you bring up a really interesting difference between classical music and dance because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, do you have like choreography from a hundred years ago that you have to like perform to prove your skill. Thing? We have um crank that soja boy. <laughs> it's very yeah. sacred. And, yeah. um, something, it's the Dougie. <laughs> the Dougie. You heard of it? No. Um, um I feel like it if there's any type of form of dance aside from um any ritualistic dances that are not in the form of entertainment um, of other cultures. Uh, the dance I think of in entertainment um, would be ballet. That has yeah, I like was going to think, yeah, ball- I feel like ballet leg. is very... They have very specific... Intertwined um, with classical music too. Yeah, mm. yeah. And that's like, that's a whole nother... <laughs> I don't have experience in ballet. I don't know how much experience you have, Justine. But uh, yeah, I've, I know that... Um, I minored in dance in university, and so we kind of had to learn, like, the history of that, et cetera. But the, in terms of the oldest to date that is existing in the entertainment industry, um, it's ballet. So um, I know that they have – I don't think it's very set choreography, but there are certain parts of the set where, like, there is – like people know like, oh, there's supposed to be a bottom up, two pirouettes, and then this, mm-hmm. you know, like that's what happens in Swan Lake. Or like it's kind of more like visually, I, every, but people always put their spin on Swan Lake and like mm-hmm. it's more of like a theme of like the production. Um, but yeah, there is like, I wouldn't say ancient choreography, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but it's like they would know like, oh, like normally in Swan Lake, this is what like at this part of the set, this is what happens. Yeah. So you make an interesting point about how when you minored in dance, you studied the history of dance. I was never encouraged to like learn the history of these composers. Like I was never really encouraged to like, you know, read their biography of what their life was like <laughs> and learn about when this piece was made. Like when did they write this piece? At what time of their lives did they write this in? It was purely just you're just studying the actual music itself mm-hmm. and like, okay, I guess just this weird entity up in heaven, like I'm just supposed to look at this sheet music and really nothing else and just figure out how they would have wanted me to play it. And Mm -hmm. usually it would be the sheet music and listening to other acclaimed performances. So Mm -hmm. like I, I always... I I had always been a big fan of Sarah Chang, who is a Korean violinist, and that she was just someone that I had watched from a very, very young age. And so I would watch her performances. I would watch Hilary Hahn, just all of these big names and just hear like, oh, how are they playing it? And then usually I think that's where I could take some inspiration from other people. But Mm -hmm. a lot of the times, even if they went wild um, with their interpretation, (laughs) 
they're kind of given that grace because they are famous musicians. Mm. Yeah. Uh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you have to get to a certain point in order for you to, you know, be accepted for whatever performance that you are putting out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. On that note, Tan, like drawing like a parallel with dance as well, how like status um, and like, for lack of a better term, clout in this in in dance as well kind of gives you leeway. Like mm-hmm. um, in in dance, or in specifically in like because I when I started dancing, it was mainly with like hip hop and um, street styles. And there's this term that got thrown around a lot called biting, which means basically like copying someone else's style or someone else's moves. And if you accuse someone of biting your moves, then that means that they're directly copying you and they're not um they're not at and passing it off as their own and they're not um paying respect to giving credit where credit is due exactly biting but um (laughs) but yeah so um and and you bring up an interesting point because like when you um like as a dancer too like in finding my own style like I watch other people you know like I watch other people like how they interpret a song and everything like that and I find like sometimes if I if I um like there was a time where I would listen to a song and I'd really want to choreograph to it. Um, and I would purposefully avoid watching um, other people dance to it because I didn't want to take take their moves. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't want to be really? accused of that. So like um, it's really interesting to kind of like how in both like the classical music world and in like my and our experiences with like er, like street styles and hip-hop there's this like there's this line that you have to dance on you know like how much is too much inspiration like how do you get inspired while still maintaining musical integrity and also um like making it your own and there's just i feel like there's just like a lot of rules because like they're telling you make it your own but like stay within the parameters but like be inspired but also like be an individual you know what i mean (laughs) be inspired but not too inspired you know i feel like in terms of like ancient like moves i think it would say i mean like me and justine are in like um the street style community right and so when it comes to street styles there are very specific moves very specific techniques um for each style for example like popping i can't pop for you because i suck (laughs) (laughs) very specific technique um there's different types of popping boogaloo and those look a certain way and these were pioneered by people that are still living um Mm. And so uh, there are also some um, other styles, like, for example, whacking or locking or vogue um, that uh, a lot of the times is is diluted in the contemporary dance sphere mm. and media. But um, I guess there's also this type of like respect thing as well, like you were talking about, is like honoring the people that um, – who created it is that a lot of the times if someone's gonna go in and be like i'm a popper but you give a weak ass pop you're like get the fuck out of here <laughs> yeah it's it, there's like, all, it's like always that. evolving dance is and so you mm-hmm. yeah you get to pick and choose almost like what labels you want to put on yourself but you have to you know back it up in some way with yeah, exactly uh, the, with showing 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 how you are able to do it mm-hmm. yeah, exactly so it's 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 a big thing of like paying homage to like the the people that came before us that's like yeah. a big thing in, our, in like hip-hop culture is like especially in street styles is being able to be like you know like i'm gonna train in this style um because i really respect like um the reason why the people decided to 
to make this style. So yeah, yeah. Another note I wanted to add before like asking y'all a follow up question was that like um, when I really resonated with what Tan was saying about like how you know you're just in your experience you were just given the sheet music and kind of like had to make sense and make meaning out of what was given to you, you know, um, because like these composers aren't around anymore to tell you what they thought. Um, when Noelle brought up whacking, that actually came to mind as well, because whacking was a style that was pioneered like in the disco age, like in LA. And a lot of the OGs, like a lot of the um, the people who pioneered the style um, were gay men, like gay men of color who died because of the AIDS epidemic. Like there's only like one living OG from the style, like for the style now. And um, whacking has since like evolved like across the world and like has been interpreted by like different people. But like there's only one person left to kind of um, who, who was there when it started. You know, shout out and Victor Manuel. Shout out Victor Manuel. Yes, and he's still I, he's still going. He's still he's going. on Facebook. Oh, oh my god, that's so amazing. Because yeah. I took his I, I took his class, and um, I don't I don't know how I oh I wrote the the article for Steezy. Um, uh-huh. Steezy's like a a dance blog um, company like thing, and I wrote on the difference between whacking and voguing. And uh, he, the editor, was able to get his input to oh. e- help edit the article. Oh, cool! Um, that I wrote, and so he added me on Facebook, and I was like, oh, <laughs> "Victor so- Monroe added me on Facebook." Connections. <laughs> I have a quick question about, I guess, mm-hmm. along this line of like musical integrity, like taking on labels, because there's also this, there's also appropriation that is a big topic mm-hmm. in the dance community. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, Sophia. I don't really think there's such a thing as appropriation in the classical music community because it's all by old, it's all by dead white composers. Right, so right. It's really not that. That's not really a factor in the musical integrity or how you interpret a piece or how you are performing necessarily. And so I would just was curious for you all how appropriation and like you know again paying homage to the OG dancers and creators of these styles, like how that also plays a part in your choice of dancing, I guess. I feel like um, I could start it off really quick, but um, I feel like it's, uh, how do you explain this? <laughs> it, it's definitely hard, especially as someone that, um, I mean, a lot of, what, what comforts me though, is that a lot of not even a lot, all of the street styles were pioneered by people of color, um, mostly uh, Black and Hispanic uh, Americans. And so it's actually also, fun fact, <laughs> uh, one of the OG whackers was Filipino. Yeah. So that's really cool. Um, so, I mean, I never really received much, like, I guess, pushback about appropriation because I am myself a person of color, except that um, once people realize I'm Asian, though, because a lot of times people think I'm Hispanic or something, Mm -hmm. or um, when I was growing up, it was a lot darker. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, but when normally they're like, oh, like, can't, like, a a lot of the times I, okay, this is, I'm going all over the place, but I grew up in a predominantly black and Hispanic high school. And so a lot of the times people don't really think you can dance because they realize, Hey, you're a, uh, you're Asian. You, you're not really 
are you allowed? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but normally it's, I feel like it's kind of like you, you can show your respect by even just through movement is like how much you're putting not only effort, but like how much you're showing, how much you love your, what you're doing. Um, also in the realm of like the culture and the community, um, you just need to know, I, I want to say know your place, but like you just, it's just about respect. You just have to respect that like, like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not black, I'm not Hispanic, but I do love this culture and I respect everyone that, you know, came before me, you know, and just don't go around being rude. Yeah. <laughs> um, just see it. Yeah, no, definitely. I was, I was affirming you. I was, did you have more to say? Sorry. I was oh, affirming um, you. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's essentially, yeah. it was like, um, a lot, a big thing, uh, that I experienced was like, aside from like the whole clout thing is, um, I kind of explained it is that like, oh, like you say you're a whacker, but can you whack? You know, like I, that's why I kind of always avoided saying something like, I'm a voguer or I'm a whacker because yes, I, I know the technique for whacking and I know, and I know the history and the cultural context because I, that's what I love to do with all the street styles. But like, I don't want to say I'm a whacker because I'm scared people are going to say like, are, are going to look at my whacking and be like, oh, you're not good enough to be a whacker. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that you're like a specialist in that form because I grew up learning all of them because of the company I was in and so it was it was like I don't want (laughs) to I don't want to that kind of like like skedaddled out of um, appropriation but essentially Mm -hmm. literally like it's it's just no matter what I, I feel like the community now is like no matter like what color you are as long as you're respectful period yeah Thank you so much for that, Noelle. Like, as I was listening to you, I resonated with a lot of what you were saying. Um, the, I think in my experience with um, the dance community and specifically like hip hop and like street styles um, is for me as a dancer, like in these styles, I, I find a way to, I, it's it's difficult sometimes for me to find the, the middle ground between and like really find my like identity as a dancer because like Noelle, I for a really long time, I was scared to call myself a dancer because I felt like, you know, oh my God, I'm stepping into the space and like, who am I? Am I pompous to call myself a dancer when like, I'm just starting or like, yeah, like now today, like I've been dancing for 13 years of my life, but like there are people out there who are better than me. Can I still call myself a dancer? So like that type of insecurity is something that you know, my fear of disrespecting the culture has kind of manifested in me. Um, Another thing too, is that like, um, also as far as appropriation goes, like when we talk about dance in general, I mean, Noelle said it earlier, how like by industry standards, the the first or quote unquote foundational style is ballet, um, a style that was pioneered in Europe by white people, but like pretty sure our like most distant ancestors were not European white people, you know, like um it's like, you know, what about what about African dance as a foundation? Yep. You know, like African dance is like a like an integral to you know, component to hip hop period. Like this mm-hmm. notion of the cipher or the freestyle circle was like a spiritual community practice in mm-hmm. Africa that was adapted by the African diaspora into this style of hip hop, you know? Right. Um, and 
I think the appropriation that I've seen a lot has not been in the dancing, but has been in the style and like the the way that people carry themselves in the dance community. Because yeah. like things like things like, you know, um like uh women and femmes like combing their edges out or wearing like cornrows, yeah. saying the N-word, things like that. Mm-hmm. People will say, oh that's hip hop, that's hip hop. I'm like, no, that's not. That's black culture. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's there's a difference. And I think like anyone who is interested, anyone, everyone should be empowered to partake in a style, but also like you need to understand who like the type of energy and the type of experiences that you're bringing to the table like um we talked about this in our consent episode but um thinking about the power that you have when you and the privilege that you have when stepping into certain spaces acknowledging that yeah you can learn whacking like yeah you can learn all these styles even though you're not a part of the same communities that the ogs came from but Mm -hmm. acknowledge your positionality as a guest in this style and if you you're not just gonna walk into someone's home making all the rules no it's their home their school their rules you know Mm -hmm. you're a guest you can participate and like be a part of the community but be mindful of what has been there before you came in you know Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. I feel like I learned so much about (laughs) this is what the experience of y'all's um dancing is like and Oh, like it's just so interesting because there are some similarities that we've touched upon, but also I think quite a few differences. Um, I I really resonated, Justine, with what you said about how you really questioned whether you could even call yourself a dancer. Um, and I think there is definitely this mm, inequity in classical mm-hmm. music where like both Sophia and I started at a very young age and I pretty much only know people who start at a young age or if the latest mm-hmm. I know of someone who started is like middle school like I can't and I hear that narrative a lot of you know I have friends who played violin or piano who you know threw a tantrum because they didn't want to play anymore from a young age and so their parents let them quit and now they're like oh like I really regret quitting like I wish I could still play and mm-hmm. I don't really hear about you know people deciding to pick up violin like (laughs) pick up violin when they're 25 years old and I know people who you know pick up piano but maybe it's like to play like cover up cover music or to Mm. you know do um other kinds of music but not really enter the classical music world and so it's just interesting because I think dance is a more I was I think a more popular medium uh amongst like people our age especially and classical music is something that I think still does feel very like high class like exclusive you know Mm -hmm. like you really if you wanted if you you know had the urge one day to want to get back and get into classical music um I think it would be really hard if you weren't in a position like Kosei's where he had prior classical music experience and decided to get back into it um Mm -hmm. and so that's just something that i noticed as y'all were talking so thank you so much for sharing yeah of course and i also like this is actually kind of a like an amazing segue because um we were talking about like our emotional connections to um our crafts whether it be dance or like music so throughout your lie in april we really see these characters um use their art to overcome trauma and like find their whys behind music you know so and um also have also encountered some blocks that have prevented them from experiencing and um 
creating the way that they've used to in a while mm-hmm. and specifically as they continue playing you know so i'm curious like in your classical music journey is like have you felt similar blocks or barriers and what keep and you mentioned like you haven't played in a while but like what keeps you playing and what keeps you involved with classical music today yeah i mentioned that i had a teacher who really cared about me playing and being happy and then I went to college and I thought I would just keep up piano very casually but my college piano teacher ended up being very strict and Mm -hmm. she really her perspective was interesting a little strange I disagreed her perspective was that I when I'm in college um, this is like a chance I get to formally continue playing these pieces so I should challenge myself and play pieces that I won't even I wouldn't really love but just like to challenge myself because this is the last time in my life I'll have this formal setting to have a teacher and have these like recurring lessons and have a chance to perform and so she really took this like academic approach and so like whereas I saw oh if I'm in college I should just be playing for fun she's like no 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 if you want to have fun farther down the road, the best way to like enable you to have fun with more genres of music is exploring genres that you don't like during college. Mm. And so I can, I can kind of see her logic, but like I was so busy. I just didn't agree <laughs> with her at all, at all. And I had a lot of arguments with her and just like really resented playing the piano because of her. And I can't, I actually ended up playing every single semester because I didn't like her, but I was so scared of her that I just like kept playing and investing time that I really should probably been doing like other things. Um, So that was a big block that I felt. Um, And then, but what was really redeeming was the chance to perform with my friends. Um, My friends had these senior recitals. And so every year, um, you know, just, it was like such a cool send off gift to be like, I'm going to be a, play a supporting role in your performance and, you know, enable you to really shine on stage because of my knowledge of your playing and what you want to bring to the performance. So those were some lows and highs of playing in college. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting to hear how your teacher went with a very academic approach because something I forgot to mention um, was, you know, I guess with dance, you can decide what styles you want to try out. And, you know, there's just a lot of variety and diversity in what you can explore in the dance medium. But for competitions in classical music, especially for, I'll speak for violinists at at the very least, most of the time you are required to play one Baroque era piece, usually like a piece by Bach, and then one like piece of your choice. And Mm -hmm. so generally there's like four main eras of classical music and there's the expectation that you should be very you you should be very excellent at least in one like in one piece in each category um Mm. and so I feel like in that sense I've always kind of seen classical music as very academic and I think because Mm. I was a very academically driven person that's kind of how I approached violin and so I definitely I think I honestly don't think I really liked violin until sophomore year of high school so mm. I played from like five wow. years old to 14 years old and the only reason I kept doing it was because I loved hearing the compliments that people would give me about how good it was and because you know like my mom would be the one who encouraged me to like bring my violin into music class where you know we're all learning how to play the recorder and I play mm. like my little piece and everyone's like oh my god that's so cool or like and then also the parents would be like oh my god that's so cool and so it was like 
just people from all age ranges were just showering me with just affirmation of how good I was. And that was really the motivation of like always being the best. Like I would always Mm -hmm. be like the youngest person in my Mm -hmm. studio who, you know, happened to be playing at like a similar level to high schoolers at the time. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until high school where I did join that quartet at the conservatory where again, like there those were people who were interested in reinterpreting the music. They were people who would be like, hey, like, you know, like Shostakovich, like, did you know that when he wrote this piece, like this and this happened to him? Did you know that he lived through both world wars and the Cold War? And so he has a really traumatic life. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. You 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 would not know that just from reading sheet music. And I think being able, I was really inspired to see people who, you know, genuinely were just so passionate. And I think what also really boggled my mind, honestly, at the time was that at their prospective high schools, they were like, not good students at all. So they really weren't driven by wanting to be like the best. They were really driven because of their love for music. And I think that was really inspiring. And so having found that community where people really loved it, um, really motivated me. Um, But I think, I guess similarly, college was kind of like, a, a low point for myself of because I was going into college and I knew that I wasn't going to do music professionally. I had chosen to not go to music school. Um, I was so desperate to for people to not know me as the violinist anymore because that was how a lot of people mm-hmm. knew before college. They were like, oh, Tan's really smart and she is really good at the violin. Um, and my teacher was the complete opposite of yours, Sophia. My teacher was the nicest person ever. I remember mm-hmm. I didn't re- I didn't practice for a whole week before the before the lesson, and I was like, oh my god, like I'm really gonna like figure it out really quickly. Yeah, and I get played, roasted. Yeah, I played really sh- shitty, and she was like, that was so great, and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And I felt <laughs> insulted by her saying that I was good because I was like. I'm not nearly as good as I was like beginning of the quarter like why and it's because she knew that most of her students are not going to be professional musicians so she's like why put people down you know why give them a hard time like let me focus on the positives but my education in music had been so negative like this entire time and so when she like showered me with an affirmation I was like no I know I'm not good like why would you say that um and so I think my biggest block from playing really has been no remembering how good I used to be and knowing that I have friends who, you know, have gone off to be professional musicians and seeing how they're doing amazing things and being like, well, what am I doing? Of course, I know that I'm doing I'm doing a lot of other stuff, um, but that comparison does come up a lot of the time. And so sometimes I find myself frustrated when I do pick up the violin because I'll get some inspiration I'm like it feels so foreign in my hands now I don't really know how to play anymore but at the very least I always love listening back on like old performances I love listening to the pieces that you know I'd spent months and months rehearsing and practicing and that at the very least brings back a lot of really fun memories for me and usually is the inspirational moment for me to like turn back at some points so can I ask about blocks in another sense? Because um, something that one of the fav- my favorite scenes is um, Kose Arima just, you know, being in the middle of a performance, having that kind of like traumatic episode, not being able to continue playing. Uh, and so I'm curious if you've ever frozen on stage before. It's kind of like bringing back to the, the beginning of our conversation. We, ta- we talked about like 
um, yeah, it's stressful being a soloist. And so there are sometimes mistakes happen. Uh, how have you coached yourself through moments in a performance where you felt like you messed up or you just feel blocked and unable to like deliver your best performance? And I'm curious, like how you talk to yourself, like what was your self-talk like to get yourself through? Because we heard a lot of Kosei's self-talk and it was like panicky self-talk, which probably wasn't that helpful. Um, but I'm curious what yours. And also I want to hear from Noelle and Justine as well. Like when you're, in yeah, the heat of the moment, performing, mm-hmm. what does that self-talk look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I feel like I should have a very nice answer to be like, this is like a pep, a nice little pep talk you can do for yourself and apply in your own life. No, my, my self-talk was very negative. It was very panicky. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and yeah, and it, it was very reflective of like just the kind of teaching that I got and that, that I do think. I know I, I just feel like a, I've known a lot of people who got similar teachings and coachings that I got and so it's I actually yeah I think if I were to perform again I would really prefer to perform in a chamber music setting where you know mm-hmm. you have multiple people who are in it with you and who are there to who you know you can trust and are there to support you rather than um similar to how Kosei can imagine his mom sitting in like a particular part of the auditorium mm-hmm. it's like that's the equivalent to me of like a teacher who's you know been hard on me or I guess even my mom who like sometimes is hard on me of like watching me and being like hmm like you messed this up like you gotta do this different next time because it it was like that performance was not the last performance so it's not the end-all be-all but it always feels like the end-all be-all for some reason mm-hmm. um, like everything is just so high stakes um and so I think having a community um, of people that you can perform with is, I think, been the most helpful piece of support for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I want to hear from you, Sophia, too. Oh, I think messing up on stage is actually very freeing because it shatters <laughs> the expectation that you kind of quietly place on yourself that this has to be a perfect performance. And the moment you mess up, the moment you realize huh, I guess I don't, I mean, there's no way I can hold myself to perfection anymore. So I don't have to keep my heart so like tightly wounded anymore. Yeah. Um, and also when I mess up, it's a really good reminder to be like, okay, what is the overall message and like emotion I want to convey here? And it's really motivating actually like, oh, how can I just, because I, I knew I would never win competitions by technique. My technique was like good, but it was never like the defining factor or the differentiating factor. But it was really like the emotion I would be able to convey. Mm-hmm. Um, and very much thanks to the training that I received. And so I actually found it to be kind of motivating to, to shatter to shatter that expectation, uh, to not have to hold myself to that expectation anymore. Mm-hmm. I really hear that. Yeah, like when you said that um, making mistakes is like kind of freeing. I think that um, what I just the whole thing that um, what I was thinking about is like, oh, if you get nervous and you build these nerves because you're imagining the worst possible situation, if you Mm -hmm. mess up, the worst thing just happened. You know, so now all that's left to do is to keep going. You know, go up from there. Mm -hmm. Exactly, it's only up from here. Um, Yeah, as far as like my experiences. I remember when I first started dancing. Um, I, I like even even now. I'm I'm very 
um, very left brain and very cerebral when it comes to like dancing. I almost get hypercritical of myself. So I'm like, honestly, like my own worst critic. Um, but like something that, especially as I've kind of developed my relationship with dances, I've gotten older, something that's comforting, especially when you're performing for, um, for family or you're performing for like a recital or something like that. I don't, I'm still nervous to go on, but like, or I was nervous, but um, and then if I would make a mistake on stage, I would like go back to my like whoever was watching and I'd be like, oh my God, like, did you notice I did this? Did you notice I did this? Mm. It was so bad. And they're like, no, I, I didn't. And then I'm like, oh, okay. So like as long as you act like nothing's wrong, then the only way they're going to know something's wrong is if you show it on your face, you know? So um, like a lot of my dance training was all about like, hey, you know, if you mess up, it's okay if you know that, but they don't have to know that. They being the audience. So yeah. So just like, just keep going. The worst thing you can do is like show it on your face, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, like I think even now how I – it's been a while since I performed and I really miss it. But in the times I have messed up on stage, um, I've, I just keep thinking like, hey, you know what? Like, yeah, like you're – um you're in your head right now but trust your body to know what to do because like your body knows how to take care of you your body's smarter than you think so um if you if you fuck up like trust that you know the piece or you know the yeah you trust that you know what you're supposed to do well enough to do it naturally and then the the rest will happen naturally so yeah what about you know Ollie? oh man i'm I can't think of one performance in my entire life that I haven't messed up on. <laughs> so that's why, like, I already came to the table as an adult and I was like, I'm going to mess up. It just depends when. Yeah. <laughs> I already know. It's going to happen. I don't care what no one says. It's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm actually kind of the complete opposite of Justine in the sense that, like, she's very, light, like, left brain, which is great when we dance together because she's my left brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm very, like, right brain in the sense I'm – I um, ever since I started performing more on, on like, like, stages and competitions and stuff, I love the stage. I – I'm a Leo moon. I'm out there. (laughs) I'm living here. This is where I live. This is what I live for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I'm here. The lights, the air, everything. It's great. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm like the type that, um, I am more performance than like getting the choreography completely. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I kind of always just trust in my muscle memory and in the fact that like, I have trained my body so much mm-hmm. um, and I'm – my memory is shit. So I will most likely – because the mess up is me forgetting. But you know what? You won't know that. Yeah. Make it work. I'm not center. <laughs> I'll be like, it was a moment for me and they will never know that it wasn't. Um, because I remember even this thing. Um, I don't know if you know her. She's a whacker. Um, Noelle Fal- Falsis. Mm-hmm. And um, – I remember in, in the realm of freestyle, that was something I was very nervous about, actually, because choreo, I got it. If I know the choreo, I'm going to just perform. If I mess up, I'm going to just look fantastic. But if you're, like, in a cypher by yourself and you're just like, oh, fuck, I kind of forgot. I I mean, there's no choreography, but, like, yeah. you're still performing, right? Yeah. Um, I remember she told us that, like, uh, she was in a battle once and uh, she hit a pose that she didn't 
it, that wasn't exactly the greatest pose ever. And she knew that um, it was an accident, but she lived in that pose. Like that was the best pose in the fucking world. And people were like, people didn't even notice. And like, she just lived in it and was like, period. Like no one even felt that she made a mistake. Right. And so from then on, that was, I learned that from her in high school. So anytime when I'm freestyling, Justine, if you see me pose <laughs> and live in that pose. She's trying to think. <laughs> literally, okay. I'm like, what should I do next? I'll just whack to the side. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's that's a huge part about like freestyle too that I've actually really struggled with. Like the whole one whole um thing like in whacking in particular is strong and wrong so like you could hit the weirdest thing ever but if you commit to it in your face if you commit to it from head to toe the audience Mm. is gonna get behind you like and that's that's your job at the end of the day like for the audience to believe that everything is intentional Mm, um it's literally your lie in april (laughs) 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 but okay i'm sorry i had to it was right there (laughs) but (laughs) Anyways, um, this is why I love you. That I was did- the most incredible transition. My goodness! Wow. <laughs> we, whenever I'm on, a, I'm on bamboo and glass, we always talk about segues and stuff. And sometimes when I listen to y'all talk, I was like, "Ooh, Sophia!" Like with the segue, like "Ooh, time with the segue." Like, hey, I have some too. I have some too. I got yeah, this. Justine literally pulls it out of a pocket every time, and I'm just like. <sighs> like wow that I'm wasn't intentional i just amazed, let it i just let you. it take me wow. um, yeah and then you lived in it exactly strong <laughs> and wrong but like before we transition into get wrecked i did want to ask y'all like one more question so i was just so inspired by like everything you were talking about and a huge theme of your light in april is not always being like someone is always watching you in a sense where it's like you never know when you can inspire someone. Like you never know the role that your art or your performance could have in someone's own creative journey. Um, and then there's this there's this ongoing thing throughout where you play for other people. You know, like um, Kose is playing. You know, wondering if Kauri is going to hear him. You know, he's he plays like wondering if his mom is going to hear him. You know, and like hoping that they like his music reaches them. So I, I kind of want to talk about like before we kind of transition into Get Wrecked, like um, can you recall a time in your uh, classical music journey or in your like, or for us, Noelle, like in your dance journey where um, you, have you had one of those experiences where you inadvertently mm-hmm. inspired someone or conversely, what's a time that music reached you and had an iconic like um, pinpoint in your musical journey? Ooh, one thing about classical music that's kind of a bummer is that um, a lot of the re- uh, competitions aren't recorded. And even if they are, you're not really hearing feedback from the audience. It's just like the mean comments from the judges. Um, but one of the pieces I got to Yours are recorded? Share- Mine are not recorded. Oh, uh, some of them may be recorded. Okay. <laughs> Most of the time, not recorded. Um, but one thing that I was able to record was in college, I recorded a music video with my friend Albert Chang, who's a violinist. And that was the first time one of my piano pieces, I think, was put onto YouTube and I got to read the comments and people mm-hmm. just saying it was about Valentine's Day. We did like a Valentine's Day medley mm-hmm. and just hearing how like encouraged and at peace and inspired and happy that the piece made people really made me think like, wow, there was never this kind of feedback um, from 
audience members for classical music, it was always just the evaluation by the judge. Mm-hmm. And it really made me think like, you know, when you're as a classical musician, I was all, I was a creator, but I never felt like I was a creator because there was no like audience community that I was in touch with all the time. It was very much me, my practicing broom, and then me on stage with the judges. Um, and it really made me think a lot about like how cool it is that other forms of art and other creators, if they're on social media, they get to see that like community feedback. Yeah. Thank you so much. Love it. What about you, Tan? Um, I have two examples, one that's, I guess, grander and the other one that's more intimate. Um, The first one is that my youth orchestra, we ended up going on tour in Europe um, the summer after my junior year. And so it was just this whirlwind of like, we went through like six, I think six different cities and performed and we played for the most part the same sets. And because we were associated with the San Francisco Symphony, um, we had a lot of connections. And so we ended up getting to perform at the Berlin Philharmonie, uh, which is where the Berlin Philharmonic performs all the time. It's like the uh, iconic Pentagon-shaped concert hall. And I guess fun fact, going back to acoustics, as we talked about that earlier, um, that hall is specifically engineered so that every single person hears the same exact thing, no matter where you are in the concert hall. So So you have seats behind the orchestra as well so it's intimate (gasps) so that the sound can still bounce off yeah Um, very very cool and i remember everyone was so nervous because the berlin philharmonic is one of the orchestras that everyone always talks about and so and also you know germans europeans they have really high standards like why would they come watch you know a youth youth orchestra of a bunch of american teens um (laughs) and i remember we ended up we performed. It was one of, I think, our second to last performance. And at that point, we just knew the music so well. And it was just, I just remember having a lot of fun on stage. It wasn't so nerve wracking. And we ended up getting a standing ovation. Um, and that's very <laughs> from European audiences because mm-hmm. um, they're very, you know, proper and just like mm-hmm. clapping. From <laughs> and so that, I think, really signaled to me how yeah, music can really transcend cultures, nations. And it was really incredible that, you know, people were so excited and accepting of people of, you know, these high schoolers who literally had never stepped foot in their country before until this summer. And so that was a really exciting experience to that I always think about. Um, And then the second one, which is a more, I guess, everyday, but still special experience is I was still taking lessons in college. And so I was mainly only, I wasn't really performing anymore. I was mainly just keeping up the violin because I felt like I worked so hard for this. I want to at least keep playing um, and have some accountability by going to lessons. So it's only playing for my violin teacher. And I remember I had my lesson the day after the 2016 election. And I remember I was playing um, Chasson Poem, which is, you know, a very complex piece. And I remember just having, I didn't really know what emotion I felt. I, I just remember scrolling through Facebook and just seeing a lot of posts of people being very, with a lot of despair, a lot of fear, and just not really knowing what to do with that. And I just kind of sat in my emotion as I, ran through the piece with my teacher and she was like that was the best you've played and like like that I've ever heard you play and I was like wow you know these kinds of things just you don't you really can't plan it how the emotion 
can show up in a performance and you know whether it's on stage or it's in a violin lesson like it's still meaningful and my teachers start crying <laughs> and so it was really cool to just be able to see that there was a moment of connection there and that you know a lot of times when you can't turn words into emotion that's why art exists for you to be able to channel that in some way mm-hmm. so oh, i love that oh it's beautiful thank you for sharing um i can share yeah uh, please so i guess this is kind of more grandiose is i i performed at uh, a competition called hhi it's called hip-hop international yeah you did it's like the olympics <laughs> dance. um and so I was performing in like the the small division and we were all female um we were all POC and that was um apparently it has never been done before that uh all female team would win <laughs> first place at um the US competition and we did that. So um, it's never been done. Uh, it's also the, I mean, one, no all-female team has ever qualified for Worlds from the U.S. And also no one has ever, um, no all-female team has ever made it to be first in the U.S. But we did. And so after even just our first preliminary performance, um, I remember uh, as we were going off uh, stage, and back to the practice room, um, people literally made a line outside, um, like almost like a hallway of people. And they were all just telling us how amazing we did. And it was a very specific time during the competition where I was just in costume, um, I think just going to look at the booths. And um, a little girl came up to me and she was like, you were so amazing and you look like me. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs> and I didn't know her ethnicity, but she was also brown. But she was like, she was like, thank you so much. You know, like she was she wasn't she was like 12 or something, but like there's like, you know, a younger division that competes there too. But like like she's like, I I want to grow up to dance like you guys. Mm. And I was like, <laughs> I can't breathe. And she was like, what's your Instagram? (laughs) 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 But yeah, that's, I'll just, that was one of the moments where it's like, wow, this is like kind of one of the reasons why I do this, you know, is to like remind like girls that look like me that like they can achieve, you know, and break the mold too. Yeah. Oh, that made me really emotional. Yeah, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Mm You know, like I was struggling to think of something to share because like I can think of so many examples of like Mm -hmm. pieces that have reached me. But like I kind of had to think about how I reach other people because sometimes I get I get insecure about like Mm -hmm. my dancing and I'm just like, is it good enough to reach people like on the caliber? Like, am I am I just a guest in this style? And that's all that I am, you know? But I think my example for a piece that has reached me is like, if you look it up on Instagram, um, Galen Hooks um, did a, oh my God, like she's so amazing. But like, she's she's one of the most expressive dancers that I've ever seen. Like in the way that, like we, we talked about, oh, we talk a lot about ex- like expression of emotion, like with art and stuff. Um, for dancer, like 
for for me and i i like especially watching this anime i like and talking to y'all i i got this new um this new like deeper appreciation for musicians because like for dancers we have our face and our body to tell a story right Mm -hmm. but for the music like the audience can't see what your face is doing from all the way in the back Mm -hmm. you know all you have Mm -hmm. is the sound and like you can still convey stories and like really really strong like like emotions you know with sound alone so like that was really really amazing to me um with galen hooks she's very expressive in the way that she moves and she really tells a story with her whole body um i highly suggest you look up um best her choreography to best part because yeah so it's a it's a um she did a couple's piece and normally like unless it's choreographed into the piece it's very taboo to lip sync in dance like um to lip sync while you're while you're dancing so um but she choreographed that into the piece and she had these couples like sing the song to each other while they're doing the piece and um some of them were real couples others like met on that day yeah and if you watch different different iterations of it she'll give couples different prompts in the workshop like everyone has the same choreography but how a prompt could take your interpretation of the move to another Ooh. level like Ooh. one was like that one was like an actual couple and they're like a queer couple and like that yeah. really like touched me but another one was like an interracial couple who just met that day and then they're like okay like i want you to dance to each other like um, we're in the era of the civil rights movement and you're stealing a kiss when no one's looking. And I'm just like, oh, so good. Oh. And literally just in the smallest expressions, like changes in like the way that you move or like the way that you wear your face is like completely changes the story. And mm-hmm. um, kind of speaking about queerness too, I, I actually just thought about um, in like an instance where like I was inspired, but also someone else was inspired. Um, I used to be a dance teacher and I was a dance teacher in a pretty conservative white studio. Um, and I had um, private lessons with this um, with a student and um, she she was literally <laughs> she was literally like cowardly, like very, very wild, very out there, very creative. I would just put on music and I, a lot of our privates would kind of focus on like, OK, well, how do you want to dance to this song? You know, like, um, yeah, we can work on the pieces that you that you're going to perform like in class or like for the recital. But like, how do you want to freestyle to this song? And I had so much fun just giving her prompts and having her play you know i'd be like okay like dance like this or like dance as if you're in this type of story you know and sometimes she would take it and like play with it other times she'd literally just throw the prompt to the wind and dance however she wanted so that was very inspiring to me because she was like 10 you know and she already had this this agency like in her and like over her movement and like another part of that was you know i wasn't out to um to the people at my studio and this girl was very open about the fact that she would always say like oh yeah my mom's getting married and like um her fiance is like picking me up or something like that and then i said she's like yeah i'm gonna be a flower girl and i'm like that's awesome she's like yeah my mom's marrying a woman just straight up and um this is like a conservative orange county so i didn't think that there were other of us, like there were more of us, you know, and like I've, oh my god, I'm getting emo, but <laughs> ah, um, welcome the emo, seriously. Um, but um, 
I had always seen queerness in my friend groups with people my age and it's and sometimes you need affirmation that there's a future for you and a future where you're happy wow I'm sorry don't, don't be, be sorry, sorry. Yeah, well but Justine while you collect yourself <laughs> I was going to jump in and say mm-hmm. a time when you inspired me with your dancing because we did a video project together oh. uh, with Matt and that one I remember when Matt sh- shared the idea with me of like oh like I want to do a, a com- basically like a coming out piece with my friend Justine and that was the first time I met you and being able to just you know, be the camera operator and to witness you um, dancing. And <laughs> if you've seen the video, there's like this part where Justine screams, but you don't hear the sound. She screamed very loudly at the actual <laughs> filming. And I remember too, um, that was our first time meeting and you, I, I think you were, you know, a little bit shy. And sometimes like if there was like something, you made me messed up, which of course I don't know that you messed up. You're like, I swear I'm professional. Like, please, like, please, like, please ignore me type of thing. And I was like, oh my God, everything that you're doing is literally incredible. And I think it was just really inspiring to see both of you put your heart into your craft and to be able to make it, you know, custom and authentic to you. And I mean, I, I would say like one way that you are inspiring other people through that is that piece helped Matt come out to his parents and his parents were so lovingly accepting of, you know, his queerness. And so I just want to remind you of that in case you forgot. Oh my God. You're so sweet. Yes. Thank uh. you so much, Dallin. Um, Yeah. Like that was, that was definitely like a vulnerable moment, like on set. And like, I think that it it's been like almost three years since we filmed that it's, it's been a while since like we, we we put that together but you know I never speaking of on that in particular like I never really understood until now that dancing can be just for me you know like because mm-hmm. we we see all these people you know like posting their like haha casual bedroom freestyle and it's super super good like or like <laughs> oh my god guys I literally just choreographed this today and it's so freaking good and it has like you know camera motions and everything and it's like a high production video and then I'm like what but (laughs) like and it and that just what you shared right now is like a really helpful reminder that like our art doesn't always have to be for public consumption like that piece in particular like I've shared iterations of that piece like on social media before but like that one where you filmed it um and it was the first time me and Matt did that piece ever together like that's for me you know, and that's going to stay mine. And it and it's not for anybody else, you know. I mean, like, it was for Matt, yes. But, like, in, in the terms of mine, in, in, like, the – and it was for Cypher. But, like, in the in the scope of my dance career, like, that's – um, it was for me. And kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, um, like, about queerness and stuff. Like, it's, it's not very often before that point. I never really – saw an example of what my future as a queer person could look like um but especially meeting you know meeting this girl um having this part of me be so casual like just be casually like a part of who I am and like she knew about it and like her mother like knew about it and like we talked about it um really really gave me hope that like like hey like there are future iterations of you that can be happy as you are 
you know like mm-hmm. you there there is a possible like timeline where you are married to a woman or like there's a possible timeline where you you have a kid and who is totally okay and with with you like with having two moms you know and like mm-hmm. that was just really hopeful and inspiring to me too um and it all started like in a dance class so oh, yeah i'm so grateful for for all that we shared today this that's actually the first time i've cried on fandom fam yeah so <laughs> have i cried i don't think i've cried i don't have think I so because usually i kind of started crying when you were crying oh <laughs> I mean, like, wow. I mean, well, one, there was a first time for everything. But two, we're just literally, like, bullshitting about Naruto half the time. And that doesn't really make us cry. (laughs) Unless I'm talking about how they need to be together. I know. (laughs) That's pretty much it. But, yeah, like, thank you so much to Bamboo and Glass for um, sharing that with us. Let's pivot to our next segment, which is... (gasps) (laughs) I wish I screen recorded that. That was hilarious. I the love it. Of, <laughs> the amount of like chaotic. Yeah, we, you know what? We just, we were just paneling Cowdery in that moment. <laughs> and like we were I doing, was, <laughs> we were doing, I was just the, thinking like how many goods were we doing? Exactly. I just felt it. But then I'm just like, I was doing like, kind of like what Sophia was saying about like looking at the person that <laughs> making eye contact. You were like, <laughs> you were my soloist and I was trying to accompany you. <laughs> it, just, it just derailed. But yeah, and then you just couldn't hear the guzz anymore. And, yeah, like, and I was I'm like, just, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway. <laughs> So um, let's go ahead and talk about some of our recommendations for the week. So let's go ahead and start with our guest for today. So Tan or Sophia, do you have any media or anything that you'd like to recommend for our listeners to check out? Yeah. So uh, Justine, you made a good suggestion that we could you know, bring up some classical pieces that we would love to recommend to our listeners. So I believe that we both have one each. So for me, um, I, re- I would say this is a piece that I like to share with a lot of my friends who don't know classical music because from the get-go, it is just one of the most beautiful pieces I've ever heard. And yes, maybe there's, you know, some classical music people who are like, it's too obvious. Like, it's too obviously romantic. I don't care. I think it's beautiful. And I like how it's just out there in the open. Like, not everything has to be subtle or nuanced necessarily. Like, Mm -hmm. let me just bask in the music here. So this is Brahms. First piano trio in B major, and particularly the first movement. Mm. And I don't know if you are including links, but I can send you the Spotify link um, if you mm. want to include that in your episode yeah. description. Um, mm. And I also wanted to share a film uh, recommendation because since we're talking about music, um, a recent film, and also it's Oscar season right now. And not that Oscars mean any, they don't need to mean anything, but I think. I'm just really glad that this particular film is getting a lot of recognition. Um, So this one is Sound of Metal. And so this is about a drummer who he's part of a metal duo and he, you know, tours around like the United States with his partner and um, musical partner as well. And he ends up getting tinnitus. And so with that, he and I think 
a lot of this is that music is such a core part of their relationship too because they've both really struggled with their mental health with addictions and music is what has been healing for for, for them but with him losing his hearing he can't really do music anymore and so i think this film is just really inspiring if i just being able to explore this person's, you know, search for his identity after having been a musician for so long. And also I'm very elated to just hear about the production side of things. So just as like fun facts, um, he ends up going into this deaf shelter where he basically is in rehabilitation. And most of the cast is from the deaf community. And the main leader of the shelter is actually the son of two parents who are hard of hearing or deaf. So he has like intimate connection um, and personal connection to that, that led him to want to do this story. And this, the actor, the main actor is Riz Ahmed. Um, so he is, yes. So I, I want to talk about this because also the AAPI community, I feel like is not talking about this film enough. Um, is colorism part of this? Maybe, maybe not. I'm just putting that out there, but he is, um, a brown actor, and he is also the first Muslim to be nominated for the Best Actor Award for for That's Oscars. Awesome. So I think, and it's on Prime, it's on Prime Video, and so it's available for pretty much anyone to go watch. And I'm just really excited for people to hear more about that, especially if you enjoyed this conversation about music. Um, this is mm-hmm. a really great follow up film to watch. So mm-hmm. those are my recs. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Tan. Um, What about you, Sophia? Mm, I will start with a classical piece as well, the cello sonata in G minor by Rachmaninoff, uh, and particularly the andante movement, so the slower movement. And usually in these sonatas, the middle movement is just like the emotional, juicy, like, oh, makes your heart <laughs> just, oh my gosh, um, movement. And this, this, this cello is just like, just takes your heart and doesn't let go until the very, very end. Actually, it doesn't even let go of the end because you just keep thinking about it even after the song is over, after the piece is over. And it goes between the major and the minor key. Like within one like breath or one sentence of the music, it switches between the major and minor so much and that, that just makes it so interesting. Uh, so that's one piece. Another piece is was my like big competition piece in high school, which is a etude, uh, a piece by list called La Leggerezza. Um, and I have just really beautiful memories of the master classes that I did. So it's with these like really high profile pianists who from around the world who I got to study with for one lesson to prepare for my competitions and then um a non-music one is this is us love the tv show tan and i are almost caught up or we're almost caught up uh, when we chatted about it on bamboo and glass so, it was mine. amazing oh my gosh thank you so much for that i yes, i'm you. so like excited to listen to these pieces especially because mm-hmm. like i don't know where to start when it comes to classical music yeah so yeah what about you noelle um since we're talking about music and kind of like what we were <laughs> talking about i i actually want to recommend uh uh i guess should i say artists because i mean i feel like any video that they make is just so touching um their, their names are keoni and mari i don't know if you guys know yeah so uh keoni and mari is like what actually one of keoni's videos was one of the videos that made me want to start dancing mm. um I would say uh, for my recommendation would to be to watch their um, is it preface preface mm-hmm. preface um, series 
Uh, I just loved, um, honestly, what I, the reason I went to film school was because I wanted to make dance narratives like them. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the whole reason why I wanted to go to film school. Everyone's like, ooh, what kind of movies do you want to make? And I'm like, dance movies. <laughs> um, I was never really interested in like creating feature films or anything. I always just wanted to express uh, what I wanted to say through dance on camera. So I feel like uh, Keanu and Mari are just such a great example of being able to express a story and emotions just so raw and just so creatively, um, both on their bodies and um, on video. So uh, one of my favorites, I think, of Preface uh, is definitely Your Mind. It's the last one. Uh, I'm a huge fan of couple choreo. Mm. Uh, I actually, that was in terms of choreographing, like, um, couple choreo is something that I always found myself really good at and I really liked because I just loved connecting with another person in a performance um, so intimately. So uh, I – and also all of their couple choreo is kind of the reason why I wanted to do couple choreo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm a huge geek over Keone uh, Mari. But yeah, they're on YouTube. Yes. That's great. <laughs> yeah. And like also a little tidbit about um, like Keone and Mari as well. Like I know Taun is like a, a Pixar buff and everything, but like <laughs> yeah. in the most recent um, Pixar movie, Soul, like the short that became that came before the movie, I think it was Soul. Either Soul or Raya. It was Soul and, it was Soul and Raya. Yeah. I think. Oh, no, it was Raya. It was Raya. It was Raya. Okay. One of those. But like Keone and Mari actually choreographed and and like they were animated into like the dance film. So like, yeah. Um little Kyonimari trivia and stuff. But yeah, I think like wow, all of y'all kind of like inspired me and stuff. So my Rex, like I mentioned it earlier, but Galen Hook's best part, check it out. You will cry. Um yes, and great. another thing, because like when Tom was talking about Sound of Metal, um, like specifically about like music and like deafness. Um, I remember being really moved by watching um, <laughs> bootleg, sorry, um, of Spring Awakening, uh, which is a production by the Deaf West Theater. Um, it's a so Spring Awakening is one of my favorite musicals. Um, it's a it's a very sad coming of age story, um, like basically talking a lot about you know what happens when children are taught are taught that the very natural urges of desire and like want and like sexuality are repe- are repressed for so long you know mm-hmm. like what happens when the adults in in your life like put all this pressure on you to be their image of pure and perfect and you mm-hmm. don't have the room to kind of explore what that means for you um so highly recommend that the um the original Broadway production like included like Jonathan Groff and Leah Michelle, who like we all know now and everything. But um, the Deaf West version came out more recently. Um, a, some of the main roles, including the um, the female lead, are played by deaf actors. Um, and especially if you watch both versions of or iterations of this production, you can see the the directorial choices that were made to. Hi- not not even accommodate but like highlight like the deaf of- and hard of hearing actors like um an example of this um there's there's an instance in the um like in 
what's it called? There's an instance in Spring Awakening. There's a scene where one of the characters, like con- like content warning violence, um, when one of the characters gets hit. And in the original production of the show, this is a like a an A to B conversation. Only two people are on stage. But with the lead being hard of hearing, um, she she and like her counterpart like her in the middle and the whole cast is sitting around them in the circle and every time she would get hit the cast would smack the floor in front of her or in front of them so they could feel the vibe she could feel the vibrations under her feet and like react like accordingly you know um there are even there's signing in the in the songs and stuff and there are cues um and everybody does it you know, even like the the hearing members of the cast, and there are signals in the songs that will that will cue other people when to go. It's really cool. It's really really cool. Um, mm-hmm. There's subtitles in the musical as well. There's freaking subtitles, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, also, I wanna I wanna impress y'all and hop on the classical musical train too. So I'm gonna recommend one more thing. Um, I like again, like I'm on the classical music side of YouTube because I watch a, a YouTube channel called Two Set Violin. But uh, oh my god, yeah, <laughs> I know, we know. We so know. I, <laughs> I found a piece through Two Set Violin called um, Der Elkrenig, and it literally um, by Schubert, and it blew my freaking mind. Like, oh. um, yeah, it blew my mind because it tells the story of like you know, basically this kid who's riding on a horse with his dad and the, the kid's like, oh my God, this monster's going to get me. And then the dad is like, no, nah, you're just dreaming. And then by the time that the song ends or the piece ends, like the kid is dead because the dad didn't believe that there was a monster. So, and then there's this what? specific performance, this opera performance by a singer named Jessie Norman. Um, mm-hmm. And she's doing all three parts of the song by herself. And oh. even though she's singing in a, she's singing in German mm-hmm. and like it's just her but in the in her inflection in the way that she changes her face in the way that she's just sitting down the whole time in the way that she changes the movement of her body you can tell which character she is like she's she plays wow. the dad of the boy and the monster and it's wow. it blew my freaking mind so go check it out Jesse Norman Der Elkrenig yeah see I know classical music too, yeah, too. Let's go. it makes me so excited to hear from people who don't know classical music like you know don't aren't trained in classical music to be excited about classical music i just feel like it's such a bubble and it's not something that i hear a lot of people venturing into so thank you for sharing that really made my day (laughs) yeah oh my god and y'all made our day so in in fandom femmes tradition uh let's go ahead and close out our episode thank you so much for bamboo and glass for being here today um you can go ahead and follow them on instagram at bamboo and glass um and listen to their episodes on wherever podcasts um are found uh is there anything that y'all want to um tell our listeners before we do our sign off Okay, um, I can kind of share maybe like a preview of some of the episodes we have coming out. So we are doing a little bit of, we, we have solo episodes, let's put it that way. Um, we both decided that we wanted to try reconnecting with some people we grew up with in the Bay Area who are also Asian Americans, that, but we just have kind of like fallen out of touch. And so we both decided to pick someone that we wanted to reconnect with. So you hear the reconnection happening in like real time through these episodes. <gasps> and we talk about like reflecting on our experiences growing up in the Bay as Asian Americans, what we feel like a lot of people don't know about the Bay and just our relationship with the Bay and how that's changed over the years. Mm-hmm. And so that's um, two episodes that you can definitely look out for. And another 
um, episode is one with a friend who talks about her role as a caregiver and a caretaker and how that was an expectation that was placed on her from a very young age on top of, you know, being an Asian woman. And so that was a very tender episode that we actually got to record that in person. That was the first episode that Sophia and I were both together for. And so that was just really exciting to record. And another, and the last one I will just promote is we have an episode coming out about Hmong traditions um, because, you know, we, some of our favorite episodes to record are the ones where we talk about our Chinese and Korean traditions. And so we wanted to, you know, diversify it, invite some friends who would be down to share their um, experiences and just see what are the similarities and differences across our different cultures. So you can tune into that, uh, I guess, basically throughout all of May essentially so if you're interested in that check us out and we are also super excited to share one of the events that we will be hosting so last year i got to watch uh you know kind of on the topic of jesse norman and performing a bunch of different characters in one uh show this woman named susan liu she uh tells the story of how her mom went in for a tummy tuck you know just to take some fat that she wasn't really happy about seeing on her tummy and just to like you know surgically remove it and her mom actually died during the operation um, because of physician just malpractice and carelessness. And she acts out every single member of her family and retells the story of what it was like growing up and going through this traumatic event. And I saw this in, a, in Seattle last year, love this performer. And um, she's actually creating this performance again. Um, and um, we'll be hosting like a post-show Q&A with her. So it's just so amazing to get to collaborate with someone, um, you know, to go from being an audience member to a co-creator. And so this screening is happening on May 8th. Uh, so from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. Um, so we have like the pre-show uh, the event and then the actual performance and the conversation will be called reclaiming our bodies deconstructing and disowning female beauty standards so wow. if that sounds interesting to you at all reach out to us on instagram at bamboo and glass and we can give you the link for the event yes that sounds amazing and we will definitely be sharing that flyer out to our listeners as well thank you so much uh bamboo and glass for uh being a part of our podcast today and uh listeners at home please check them out they have an amazing podcast and they do an amazing work so we're really honored that y'all took part of your day to spend it recording with us so until next time remember to be you be free and be brave thank you bye thank you